Weir's World, the All Ears podcast, in association with Hoppy's Dry Suit Services, keeping you dry in the wet stuff. For more information, search Hoppy's Dry Suit Services on Facebook. Welcome to Weir's World, the All Ears podcast, which will take you on a roller coaster journey around the world. Follow me from Beijing to New York City and back as I share my tales to tell, encompassing the 10 years of Gliadric and the Kabbalistic Cavalry, as well as touring with some well known faces. From celebrity stories to travel nightmares, We'll be reminiscing on the ridiculousness of it all, with special guests jumping in along the way. All Ears is your new favourite weekly podcast. Evening, Squire. Hello again. How are you? Uh, very well. How are you? Yeah, we're still here to tell a tale. We are. We're still here. It's dark outside still. I don't like... Are you a fan of the winter? <laughs> great, great chat. <laughs> I'm a fan of the winter. Um, breaking news. No, I'm no. Not, a, not a great fan of the winter. It's, um, I prefer the, the light nights, the sun... And mm. the heat, the cold does my head in. Wow, that's quite strong. It does yeah. your head in. Yeah, it does, does my head in. a strong feeling I'm, towards I'm a, it. I'm a fair weather lad, <laughs> I think it has to be said. What about you? Uh, I am a massive fan of the summer. <laughs> Love the summer. <laughs> you, you, you played a big curveball there right yeah. at the last minute. I massive like fan. Huge fan of the summer. Huge fan of the summer. Yeah, we got on very well, me and summer. You and summer. Yeah, mm. not so much the winter. Yeah, not pals. No. Fair play. Uh, yeah, we've uh, hopefully we don't have anyone else to apologise for this week. <laughs> yeah, um, we've done far too many last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once again, yeah. far too many of those. Um, but tonight we do um, what you've just said is actually pretty topical. We're mm. we're here tonight to, for once, present a semi-serious podcast. Yeah, we do um, them. We can do semi-serious. Can we? We'll give it a shot. Yeah, we'll yeah. give it a shot. Uh, we're here to we're here to talk about um, mental health uh, in this episode in particular, and uh, we're delighted to be joined uh, tonight by author and all round good guy, Chris Duke. Hi, Chris. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm actually I'm quite good, thanks. This is a this is a, a a bit of a change, isn't it? Like I think this is our relationship coming full circle now. Because yeah, the first time you and I spoke, I interviewed you. That's true, yeah. Yeah, now I remember, yeah. yeah you was... just remembered where you met Chris, is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how we know each other, isn't it? From when right. when you interviewed me initially with, with Gliadric um, back in the day. Um, how's things, though? Are you all right? Yeah, yeah, we're getting there. Um, it's been a, a very unusual nine months, ten months. If, th- if things were normal, I'd be telling you a completely different story just now and telling you how busy I've been and how tired I am and how how happy I am to be sitting in my house now finally but it's it's different um I've, I've been home for nine months it's weird I'm getting on we've said this before that um if it wasn't for whatever's happened in the world this might not happen nah. the situation right now yeah, we wouldn't have started a podcast if there was no pandemic definitely not it's funny because uh myself and the girls and, and, and my wife obviously we were sitting at dinner tonight and we were talking about about 2020 and like because my my eldest daughter goes is going through this thing where it's just 2020 worst year ever boom that's it and she's only 10 yeah. so we, we tried to kind of go down the positive route and go well let's think about the good things that 2020 brought us and we sat and honestly we must have been listing things for about an hour yeah but all this stuff that wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a pandemic there are some positives to take from it for sure how did you find the lockdown how did it treat you um What'd you get up to? Uh, yeah, well, there's um, there was there was I like to describe it as the the two A's helped me through lockdown: alcohol and Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> were you one of them that were like buying something like a what was the saying? The parcel a day keeps the doctor away. Right. <laughs> honestly, when the, when the Amazon guy came to the door, it was like, oh, what's this now? 
What have I bought? <laughs> you stage you were on first name terms with him. And Aye. Oh, Chris. Aye. Yeah, again. It's like, okay, we see, we see the van outside. It's like, oh, what's one of us bought now? <laughs> yeah, and I have I was, got some amount of crap in my house now. <laughs> I was I was staying with my folks and my family for a bit of the the pandemic, and I remember the Hermes guy coming around and saying that he was expecting he was fully expecting an invite to Christmas dinner. It was yeah. bad. <laughs> so what what would you say is the most ridiculous purchase that you made during the pandemic? Let me just which one? I've got five of them <laughs> hanging up here. We'll go with this one. You know that I'm a big wrestling fan. I've, you, you've yeah. seen my sessions. Yeah. Um, this is a replica WCW world title belt that once was held by Ric Flair. That is probably my most, <coughs> my craziest purchase. Ali, did you did you buy anything mental during the pandemic? You know what? I don't think I did. I don't I don't think I did, but I'd done what pretty much every person done when cut their own hair. And the very first time I'd done it, it was tragic. Paul it was cut my awful. hair. Paul was cutting my hair, yeah. He's obviously cut it today then. <laughs> <laughs> Behave yourself. Yeah, I bought loads during the pandemic too. I mean, I don't know what the most ridiculous thing is. The most productive thing was definitely my flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that. That, is, that is reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> but I did buy a lot of silly purchases as well. I'll not, I'll not lie. <laughs> obviously, we're here to talk um, about your life and the, your experiences uh, up to well the present day. Um, and obviously, your kind of battles with mental health and how that led to the release of um, Lucy's Blue Day and everything that's happened from there on. So, first of all, let's talk about your upbringing, like because you you didn't grow up in Dundee, did you? You grew up in the West. No, Coast. no, I'm a I'm a Glaswegian through and through. Uh, born East End of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. born and bred uh now the thing is when when people hear that you're from the east end of glasgow the first thing people assume is that you're you know that you're hard you're a bit rough but i mean you could you know me very well i'm not i'm far from that mm. and even as a wee boy like i was i was the wee boy that would that would cry at the drop of a hat you know i was i was the wee boy that that, that, that got bullied quite a lot at school mm. and I, I didn't really fit in too yeah. well with uh, with everybody at school and it's funny because i'm just going to just drop my my next book in there <laughs> i've just released a book called big boys do cry and it's it started off as a kind of self-help book and all of a sudden it turned into an autobiography and that's where thinking back to growing up in the east end of glasgow and realizing that you know I, I was bullied quite hard and all i wanted to do was fit in but i wasn't willing to go that extra mile and be the kind of tough guy that everybody supposedly was yeah. back then but it's worked out better for me now I mean, the thing is my, my, my parents were great my, my parents are lovely they're loving parents even better grandparents now um See, nothing but- was particularly bad in my childhood yeah. which funnily enough was obviously because when as I got older things got worse but nothing was there to kind of trigger anything that happened as I, as I got older it's really interesting though and like um you're talking about how you were bullied like do you mean like physically do you mean verbally do you mean a bit of both or like what sort of level are we talking about here uh, mostly verbally emotionally still i'm i am i am now 37 years old and i can safely say i've never been in a fight in my life apart from a, a couple of daft things but never been in a, a, a proper physical fight in my entire life so it's mostly verbal and emotional stuff yeah. quite overweight as a kid it's funny i would my mom always said that i would i would grow out and then i'd grow up and then I'd grow it, and then I'd grow up. So I was always like, God, I'd called fat or... Yeah, like, I, I guess nowadays, from when, from the first time I met you, you're physically half the man that you, like, that you were then. Well, we'll I'll tell you what, we'll say quarter, because um, quarter of it went back on during lockdown. <laughs> during lockdown. <laughs> 
Oh, so did you have Amazon delivering the snacks as well? Did you? <laughs> oh no, just eat. That was a just eat. Job. <laughs> just eat. <laughs> yeah. Back back in your school days, you obviously you spoken about you were bullied and stuff, and there was. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can remember very well the names of some of the people who were were bullying you. Have Have you heard from them again in your adult life, possibly, like to express how well you've done since, or no? Yes. Um, and it's funny. Uh, it's funny that that the you bring that up because it's quite literally when it came out that I was writing an autobiography, that's when the ping started to come through. And you could yeah. tell the people that knew that they treated me bad when I was younger, because they would literally just say, you know, I hope you've not written anything about me in this book mm. or anything like that. Whereas the people who were genuinely nice to me would commend me for what I'm doing and, you know, and things like that. But no, I got a few messages it's an interesting one because, like, uh, I can relate to that because, like, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I was bullied at school, but I, mm-hmm. I would put myself down as being a bit of a loser. Like, I was not, I would never have said like I was like a popular kid. Like, I was a mm-hmm. bit of a, of a geek in a lot of ways, and uh, I guess in some ways was kind of slagged for playing the pipes. And there were like so many like sexual innuendo jokes made of blowing the pipes, etc. Oh, and, yeah. and, and and like I can take that, and it's a bit of a laugh now. But at the time, I guess like it was quite at heart and there was a lot of things but the same people or some of the same people who back then would be first to slag you off are the same mm-hmm. people that'll, that'll message you and say can you get me guest list for this can you get me guest list for that yeah. well you know they get a, either no reply or they get an almighty f- off do you know what i mean <laughs> so you grew up in the east end and then how come how did you end up in dundee how did that happen um wave Actually, no, we'll go a wee bit further back, actually. Um, when my, my, my now wife and I first met, we got together the day before she moved to Dundee. We worked together in Frankie and Benny's. She was moving to Dundee to go and study acting at the space. And I decided that I was going to move up here with her. Now, at this point, I was I was early 20s. And uh, I, I worked as a DJ in one of the nightclubs. It was called The Lowdown at the time. I don't know what it's called now. Over at Seagate. It's one where you go downstairs to the main... Um, no, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> um, I worked as a DJ there and I, I didn't really have the, the best time at that point in Dundee. And then we both moved back to Glasgow. And oh, so you moved, here, bit... then you moved back? Yep. Right. Yeah, okay. we, we moved back to Glasgow. Uh, we, we lived in Greece for six months at one, oh. at that, at one point because I went over to be a holiday entertainer for a wee while. And then I started chasing my, my radio career. And I got into a radio station in Glasgow, a sports radio station in Glasgow, and I know hee-haw about sports, right? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. What what so, prompted you to want to be a radio DJ in the first place? Like, where did that come from? Oh, uh, again, when I was a wee boy, I had two tape decks, and yeah. I would push them together, and I'd make radio shows for my mum and dad. And uh, I'd, I'd press record on one and play on the other and play the music, and I'd always wanted to be on the radio. I mean, you can hear just now that I love talking. I love telling stories. That's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, so I started to chase that that dream. And I got into this, this sports radio station knowing all about sports. <laughs> um, apart from wrestling. But I think what we've established, people don't think wrestling is a real sport. Um, but I'll get to that at some point as well. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, who's the... I want to say Dundee United manager. So Dundee United are managed by Mickey Mellon. No, it's not that one. Dundee's James McPake. James McPake. There he is, right? I am shocking at pronunciation. So I'm I'm sitting reading the news, right? And this, you're talking eight years ago or something like that now. And I'm sitting reading the news and I'm like, da, 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 da. James McPackey. <laughs> and I got bollocked from, from the, the, 
the, the, the boss of the radio station. But that, that kind of shows you how little I knew about sports to be working on a sports <laughs> radio station, right? I started to get miserable in there because yeah. I couldn't do anything that I wanted to do. But I always remembered when I worked in cash converters in Whitehall Crescent in Dundee, they always had this radio station on and it was a proper local radio station that was uh, hosted. Dave Moran, uh, I believe, was the breakfast host at the time. And I, and I loved listening to it and it was Wave 102. And I thought that is the closest local radio station that I could get in. Because in Glasgow, there, was, there wasn't any local stations. You had Clyde, but they were part of the bigger network. So I thought, right, I'm focusing all my energy on getting into this Wave 102. Phoned them every single day for a year. Without, like, yeah. without fail, every single day I was on the phone to them trying to get even just a meeting um, before Alistair, um, Alistair Smith, who mm-hmm. you know quite well, um, he invited me up for uh, a cup of tea and a wee chat. And two weeks later, I was on air in place of Dave Price because he was he was had the dentist or something that day. Uh, everybody at that that time in Wave was lovely. So then, so yeah, that, that's when I started kind of depping for, for Al and... And, and coming in and covering his holidays, of which he had many. And then when we moved over to the new studio, I had a oh, full two weeks, like from beginning to the end, full two weeks there. It was great. I was still commuting from Glasgow at this point. And then I'll get shifted away. And then we got the new guy up. And that's when I got offered the breakfast show. And again, I was still commuting. And I, I mean, I'm getting up at half past three in the morning to go and don't go into a drive from Cumbernauld Quite to do a breakfast show. Eventually, we decided, nah, do you know what? We're going to move. Uh, we looked at a few places in Dundee and then finally settled on Forfar because it's a hell of a lot cheaper to live in Forfar than it is to Dundee. Yeah. And we're here. That's, so, a long, that's a long-winded version of saying I got on the radio and um, <laughs> and moved to Forfar. Um, did you, like, you were, we've spoken about wrestling. Well, you, you were into wrestling, right? Did you do wrestling yourself at one point? I had one match. One match, right? Yeah, I went on the Davina McCall show this time next year and told her that I wanted to lose weight and become a wrestler and had like trained hard for a year, uh, lost lost quite a bit of weight and had uh, that one wrestling match where I got I got to got to wrestle on ITV, which was great in front of millions of people. Did, and uh, did your one wrestling match go well? I will show you how well my one wrestling match went. That is how well that <laughs> went. Now, for people who can't see... I'm showing the big gap between my front two teeth and the rest of the teeth that aren't there. So, so this because... is why you've got to buy belts rather than earn them then, yeah? Yes, yes, <laughs> very much so. Um, it, do you know, it was a fun match. And it, and as limited as my wrestling knowledge was, I think I did pretty well. Um, the only thing is the guy who I was facing, who was supposed to drop kick me, supposed to drop kick me right in the chest and then I would go down because the ITV cameras were there and the adrenaline was pumping he jumped up for a drop kick and got me right there Oof. and bought in my chin bang knocked these three teeth right out and that was enough to make you go nah no more That's wrestling I, I was only ever going to do it once anyway I just it was one of those things that I wanted to put on my bucket list and yeah. I'll take off my bucket list sorry and and I managed to do it and it's a it's a good story to tell yeah, Especially when, when I'm in schools and I'm talking to kids, it's a good it's a good way to engage them and say, you know, I, I know somebody who wanted to be a wrestler. <laughs> yeah. I knew that wrestling fitted into your story in some way, but let's, so to go back to, to radio DJ, um, mm-hmm. it's obviously a really unique job in that you get to interview a lot of really interesting people. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say are some of the most interesting kind of interviews that you that you had? Um, oh, God. honestly, there's, there's so many, right? Um, uniqueness, Eddie the Eagle, 
was was one you know the 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 ski jumper yeah um he was actually a lot of fun I had a, I had about 10 15 minutes with him and he was he was a lot of fun um i had ollie Murs guest co-hosting the breakfast show with me at one point and that that's a and i'm sure we'll come back to this but that's a part of my my whole mantra now is taking advantages advantage of opportunities that, oh, that yeah. are there i was given a 15 minute window to have a pre-recorded interview with ollie Murs, and i decided to take that opportunity of rather than just having a bog standard 15 minute boring interview and turn that into eight pre-recorded links on on my radio show and have it marketed as Ollie Mars is co-hosting the breakfast breakfast show with me and that's how I ended up doing it and that was great fun our, our listenership went through the roof that day I interviewed uh, this really cool up and coming band um, that had you know like brass and bagpipes and stuff can't remember their name though um, I do remember pronouncing their name wrong um, <laughs> the first time I interviewed them and was uh, very swiftly corrected. Uh, by the lead piper but the the one story that that always stands out to me is when i was asked to go and interview mel c yeah from the spice girls uh-huh. i was sent down to glasgow to interview her like backstage at her concert mm-hmm. and again i didn't want to make this just your, your standard boring interview so i took time to learn three chords on the ukulele and it just so happens that those three chords were the exact same three chords that basically make baby when you're gone <laughs> or the her song with Brian Adams. Yeah, yeah. So we went down to do the interview. She spotted the ukulele in my bag. She'd asked me about it, and I was like, "You know what? Sack it. Let's do this." And I explained to her what I'd done, and I says, "Right, well, you be you, and I'll be Brian Adams, <laughs> and let's sing." Now I can safely say that I have sung with a Spice Girl. Can you sing? I like to think that I can. Yeah. And did she? Did she rate your singing? She didn't say much about my singing. Um, she kind of just laughed and went, "Oh, that was brilliant. That was that like brilliant as in that was a lot of fun." She didn't rate my singing. It was great because you. So to go back to the Ollie Mars thing, you were the compare for his show in Dundee, right? I I was supposed to just DJ. I, I learned uh, genuinely. I was supposed to. I was told by my boss and the the folk backstage at Ollie Mars as well that I was just to go on and do a DJ set for mm. forty five minutes. But again, I seen an opportunity. Yes. And I and I didn't want to I didn't want to squander it. And so, then I realised I'm stood in a stage in front of ten thousand people in Celesa Gardens, and I'm just here just pressing buttons like that. Sack that, not a chance. <laughs> I I got them doing YMCA. I did the, a whole call and response thing, and, yeah. and I got them to shout. I said I, I, at the end of the whole thing, I shouted, "Dundee, what's your favourite radio station?" And they all shouted, "Wave one hundred and two, and it was a whole big thing. It was I loved it. Like I learned a lot of what I do now from you because you take advantage of every opportunity that's given to you as well. For sure, yeah. Um, so from there, um, apart from myself, who's the most awkward person that you've interviewed that just didn't want to be there and just didn't <laughs> want to chat? I am I'm very lucky in the sense that I'm quite an easy person to be interviewed by. And if somebody is if I feel that there's a barrier between us, I will do whatever I can to try and break that down. So by the end of the interview, that person is um, is is relaxed with me, and and they'll be quite yeah, quite quite easy to, to chat to. I'm going to say a name here, and you're not going to you're going to have no idea who this person is. That the hardest interview I ever had was with a wrestler named Colt Cabana. I had a real struggle with McFly, and because it was all done via ISDN, I, I couldn't see them, but I could only hear them. So they were in a studio like somewhere in London. London but yeah. It sounded like they were in the same studio as me. They, they were just, they had like four minutes for me. 
That's like that's the time I was allotted, and they were just very one-wordy and very. It was a Sunday morning; they, they couldn't be bothered. You yeah. know, they're probably all hungover. I really struggled to break to break through them. Hmm. Was was the one, but mostly the majority of people I've interviewed have, have had quite fun interviews away. Yeah, I think around the time, obviously, that we'd met and you were doing your wave stuff, it was great when you you, you came to. Compare for us as well at our at the the the, the EP launch for where we're That's from. Right. That was a great night as well. That was my very very first engagement as a Wave One or Two presenter. First time like going out and hosting an event and anything, yeah. Because Alistair, because at that point Alistair just kind of took me under his wing and kind of took me out to do all these different things. And that that, that was like I really really enjoyed that night. Yeah, it was a fun one. It was good. Yeah, even by the end of it as well. Weren't <laughs> sure. we all? It's like it's a recurring right. theme of the podcast. <laughs> oh no, it wasn't an open bar. What it was, we had um, we had Adam Finley's credit card that night. Adam <laughs> Finley being the owner of the radio station. Um, obviously, we've addressed your days with with Wave and in radio. Mm-hmm. How did that all come to an end? And then how did that lead to you then going on and becoming an author? And there's a story behind the ending as well. And this, I was on air one Friday morning, two days after getting a pay rise. And Paul, the uh, program controller at the time, had come into the studio and he says, right, Chris, can you pre-record your last hour? We need to, we're going to have a wee, a wee meeting upstairs in the in the boardroom. I was like, yeah, sure. I never thought anything of it. Went into the boardroom. Uh, Adam was sitting there, the owner of the station. Paul was in there as well. And I went in on my own and came out without a job. I was I literally lost my job while I was on air, and that was my last. I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye or anything. Couldn't get a chance to say anything. I finished that show on Friday, saying, "Right, whoever it is is up next. I'll see you Monday." And it was it wasn't the case. We've had been sold to well, eventually it was sold to DC Thompson right from under everybody's nose. I was very angry and I was very bitter at the time. Yeah, because they because I moved, I moved my entire family from Glasgow to to to, to Forfar, um, yeah. for that job. Yeah. Paul had given me a pay rise two days before, and he was just finalising the contract in inverted commas, you know. Yeah, and I was literally I was three weeks away from uh, my my gastric band surgery because at that point I was I was grossly overweight and I was two months away from having my third kid. So yeah. I was I was angry. I was so angry and I was so bitter and I and I couldn't work out what I was going to do next. I had my dream taken away from me. That was my yeah. dream job. Yeah. You know, and like Waves listenership doubled while I was on the breakfast show. Yeah. It was the only time that TFM were worried about Wave. Yeah. Was when I was on the breakfast show. And that's no try to pat my own ego or anything like that. There was no way Wave was ever going to beat TFM, but no. they were they were worried when I was there because I was giving them I was giving the listener an, an alternative yeah. rather than just going that was this is you know type radio the Erin Erin Linton who was the yeah. female uh, co-host lovely girl uh, as well to be fair oh she is um, to uh, to Webster um, but she told me after she was let go um, from Tay that, that they were they were worried about me yeah and Tay were considering hiring me not to put me on air but just to hire me to to do social media or something like that just to get me away from wave but um but yeah so i i my dream like i was right i was flying high my dream was i was i loved radio i loved doing what i was doing and all of a sudden it was gone it, it, it wasn't nice um and I, I went i went for a wee bit of stability and 
to go back into hospitality. I took a job at uh, Forbes of Kingenny. Um, I wasn't fit out for that place, not a chance. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a boy for the East End of Glasgow. That place is quite, you know, hoity-toity. Can, can and, we just clarify, we've um, um, quite a big percentage of our listeners um, are in the US. Hmm. Um, can you define the term hoity-toity? <laughs> hoity-toity? Oh, uh, uh, no is the answer to that. I can't <laughs> define that term. That's like trying to explain what iron brew tastes like. Upper class is probably the yeah. best way you can use to... Yeah, snobby. No, hoity-toity, snobby. Just imagine <laughs> some of our listeners in New York are not hoity-toity. That's quite Irish. That's in the I think they're going to think it's like tight trousers or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so, it, it, and it was run about this point that I was putting my eldest girl to bed and she had said to me, she was, it must have had a pretty, like a rough day at school or something. And she said to me, Daddy, do you ever just not like being you? And at wow. this, I mean, she was, she was like seven years old at this point. It's massively articulate for a seven year old. Yeah. But I remember feeling like that when I was, when I was her age. Okay. And so I didn't like being me. Relating straight away. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, oh, I, need, I need to do something here. I need to do something about this. And it was that night while I was working at Forbes of Kingenny that I pulled out my phone and I, I started writing what I thought was just going to be a wee poem for my little girl. It's amazing that, to inspire you, though, to like... Yeah. A trigger, something just yeah. goes up in your head. And I'd always had this, the, 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 the phrase, it's okay sometimes to have a blue day. I'd always had that floating around the back of my head somewhere. That night, I, I pulled out my phone and I wrote this wee poem and I never, I didn't do anything with it for about six months and I'd showed it to my wife and she yep. suggested... Well, why don't why don't we get it illustrated and turn it into a wee book for her? You know, it might it might help. So that's that's what we did. We went to try and find an illustrator to illustrate this poem that I had written, and that illustrator ended up costing quite a bit of money. I don't have quite a bit of money, so I realised that okay, I don't have any money. Mm -hmm. So we started to crowdfund, uh -huh. and we went public with the idea of creating this children's mental health book mm -hmm. that again was supposed to only be for my kid and then lucy's blue day was born and people started to without trying to sound too money driven mm -hmm. we realized that there was a market there because yeah. people were were interested in it of and course. before we knew it we, we were more than halfway to our funding goal and then something unbelievable happened um a friend of mine won the lottery but she didn't just win the lottery because when People say this all the time. Oh, I won the lottery. I've got four numbers, five numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she got six numbers on the Euro millions. And um, yeah, she funded the rest of it. And she ended up buying the first 10,000 copies of the book. So we could then subsequently sell them. And it was, at, it was at that book launch that I realized that I could get up and I could talk to these kids and, yeah. and relate to them in such a way that school started contacting me and saying do you want to come into the school and have a chat with the kids and before i knew it i was in my car and i was driving up and down the uk visiting schools from as far north as aberdeen to as far south as somerset you know we, we were everywhere it was it was it's, it was just amazing how it, i mean it, it completely snowballed I, I listen like holly willoughby's on my list Right, my my. List. <laughs> oh, come on! Everybody's got a list, right? <laughs> right, and it's the list of people that were that. If anything were to happen with the wife, wouldn't they bother? Right? Yeah. It was run about <laughs> last. It was last summer at some point. I can't remember specifically. And we got invited to go down to Birmingham to take part in this morning live, 
which was um, a big kind of trade show. Um, so it was connected to this morning. It some... was connected to this morning, yeah. Right. Um, Holly and Philip were there. Eamon and Ruth were there. Alison, uh, like the whole, they were all there. So we got to set up a stall there and we got to sell books and and make make connections. So it was it was a Saturday morning and we were just setting up the stalls and there was a, a kind of hubbub going on run about the security doors and people were all up looking at what going on and all, all I could see was this you know, bright platinum blonde hair walking walking towards what would have been the the area that we were in but there was a whole bunch of other stalls there as well and it turned out this it, it was Holly Willoughby. At that precise moment, I knew that she was going to be walking past our stall. And I thought, right, this is it. There's going to be no other opportunities here to do this. So I grabbed a copy of my book and I stood and genuinely, I I, I stood in the middle of the aisle like that, arms out, <laughs> legs out to, to stop her. And I just went, I said, listen, I'm sorry. I, I know that. You, you need to be somewhere, but this is the only chance I'm going to get. And I came here for the sole reason of getting this book in front of you. Mm-hmm. So here you go. And I gave her a copy yeah. and and she, she took it. She looked at it and then she walked away. And I know that her kids have got, like her both of her kids, well, she's got more than two kids, but I know two of her kids have got copies of the book. But she's, she's never publicly said anything mm. about it. But that, that, I mean, that weekend was great because Alison Hammond got a copy of the book as well. Yeah. Ryland's got a copy of the book. <laughs> who else? Who else was there? Christopher Biggins. <laughs> <laughs> what a gent he is as well. I've met him as well. What a guy. Oh, I, 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 that's the only time I met him was yeah. there, but he comes across as like, like the ridiculously friendly. Yeah. Um, Holly didn't speak publicly about the book, but there's plenty of other people who have, like Lorraine Kelly, for example, has been mm-hmm. a big supporter of the book. Well, I've, I've known I've known Lorraine for about 10 years. I was in a musical in Ailuth. Um, it was a premiere for, of this musical, and she got invited to the premiere as like in a special guest because she lived around the corner. And she came to see the show, and she had a good time, and she came backstage and... and she met me and she says, do you know what? She said, here, you, you can sing right in my face, very aggressively in Glaswegian, you know, you can sing. And I was like, oh, wow, thank you. And I'd sent her agent an email like the very next day, thanking her for coming, thanking her for being so kind to speak to me. And at the bottom of my email was my phone number, as it always is. And two days later, I got a text message saying, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed the show. It was lovely to meet you. Lorraine. And I thought, hey, hold on. I've got Lorraine Kelly's phone number. <laughs> Saved it right away. Um, and it started off with just, you know how like at New Year, you send your blanket text message, Happy New Year, and you send it to everybody in your phone book? Yeah. That's how it started. I would send Happy New Year. She'd send Happy New Year back. And then it started with me just asking her favors all the time. But that's kind of how our, how our friendship kind of yeah. happened. And then I was trying to think about the right way to get her involved with Lucy's Blue Day and it just so happened that uh, the Dundee United Community Trust offered to host the launch and obviously she is the Arab, that's what you call a Dundee United yeah. supporter isn't it? Arab, yeah. so she's Arab through and through, she she bleeds orange I thought well here's a good opportunity to get her involved and she recorded the audiobook for Lucy's Blue Day and yeah she's been, she's been massively supportive since it came out, uh, Stephen Fry said that the book is charming John Cena uh, said that I he thanked me for all I do for young readers. 
taking I'm taking that one. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, Doctor Range was one of the first people ever to tweet about it. Um, Instagram. Yeah, so there's quite a few people that have endorsed it in a way. That have endorsed it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you still kind of pinching yourself over at what Lucy's Blue Day has become, or do you still kind of think you know what this is it? This is no. I'm. I live. I, I live in constant fear of it just disappearing yeah because i'm not used to in my life i'm not i'm not used to things getting to a certain point and then they just go radio for example being one of them you know like relationships past girlfriends and stuff they get to a certain point and then all of a sudden sudden, i do something to screw it up and i'm and i'm still at this stage of my life where i'm like okay lucy's blue day is great but what am i gonna do you know i I feel you because i think i'm a big planner right like band or no band, like a lot of people will ask you that really contrived question of where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And the way I see it at the minute is that you can make so many plans, but at the end of the day, life will take you on its own course and you need to be flexible and open to that happening because I I, I feel like it's impossible to make plans nowadays. And these this pandemic has only heightened that as well, you know? Yeah, 100%. I was uh, like so depressed when the when the pandemic hit and I wasn't allowed to go into schools because I lived for that every single day I would get up like there was a point there was a point in my life right back when I was when I was like really really overweight where I would I would wake up in the morning and I would be I would be disappointed that I made it through the night so I mean I I would literally wake up in the morning and I'd be like oh well well still alive then and then just you know get up and go on with my day you say you've uh your your weight loss journey as well that's a huge impact on you so just oh, those that don't yeah, know the story how much weight have you lost from my heaviest to my lightest it was 12 and a half stone wow so i was 25 stone at my, my heaviest and then i dropped down to 12 and a half and then you know covid came along and <laughs> just eat happened and uh, I'm, I'm i'm sitting up at 16 just now but doing doing 16 from 25 i'm still happy with yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. You, you 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 were deeply depressed and you were waking up disappointed yeah. that you were waking up yeah disappointed that, that i'd woken up and then but then when i was doing the lucy's blue day stuff and when i was on tour and i was out and i was helping people every i would wake up i'd get up, i'd wake up at six o'clock in the morning i'd be happy to be awake yeah. and i'd be like right let's go let's get on this let's go and do what we got to do and then that got all that all get taken away from me. A lot of people might not know from listening to the pod, podcast that my day job is as a teacher, and uh, obviously had the the pleasure of welcoming you in to to school, and you could really mm-hmm. see that enthusiasm and passion that you had for doing mm-hmm. that when you were in. I loved it. I love meeting the kids that the book helps. Like there was there's one story that I always tell, and I don't I don't tell the kids that story because it's a yeah. bit of a it's a bit deep. When the book first came out, it was about two weeks after the book first came out, I got an email from uh, the carers of a young boy who, he was eight years old, and the year, the summer prior, his mum had died. And between his mum dying and my book coming out, he had, and this is his own words, that he had tried to go to heaven a, f- a few times to, to be with his mum. And the, the, these carers had tried everything with him, and they thought they they would add my book to his collection to see if it would help make any difference. And since the book came out and since they, they read now, they now read that book to him twice a day. It's part of his treatment and he hasn't self-harmed once since, since the book came out. It it baffles me because I'm just a boy for the East end of Glasgow who 
who worked in catering for a while and, and just happened to write a book. And I get this really bad imposter syndrome sometimes when I feel that I'm, when, when I find out that I'm responsible for, for some kid surviving something. I, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it for the world. My other book, My Big Boys Do Cry Book, the introduction to that book, I talk about how I'm, I'm sitting in the eighth row of the, the, the Victoria Palace Theatre in London, yeah. getting ready to watch the curtain go up for Hamilton. A position that I would never, ever have been in if I'd kept on the path that I was going on. And it's not about the fact that, I mean, the ticket for Hamilton cost me 25 quid because I managed to, because I was in London on my own and there was a single seat in the middle of the auditorium and nobody was taking it. So it wasn't a financial thing or anything like that, but it was to do with the fact that I was there, I was in London, I was able to go and see that. And it was all thanks to Lucy's Blue Day. It was all thanks to the, the journey that I'd been on. And then literally three days after Hamilton, we went into lockdown and it all just ended. Everything just went away. So first of all, you were talking about how your, your passion for doing school visits and stuff, how that helped you to almost feel like you had a sense of purpose when you were getting out of bed. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important message for anyone who is struggling, that find something that you're passionate about, find something that can help you to express yourself and how you're feeling Music, music helps me to express myself. I know mm -hmm. I've got some friends that do the same thing with art. And I think it's a really important message to, to put out there that to find something that, that, they're, that people are passionate about and to, that helps you express yourself and your feelings as well. And the thing is, it's no, it's no easy to find that one thing that you're, you're passionate about. And don't be afraid to fail at a hundred things to get that one thing right, I found that one thing that kept me standing. Yeah. And that's that that's where I that's where I am now. So don't be afraid to fall because the worst thing that's going to happen if you fall is that you get back up and you fall again. Like you say, you know, find something that you can do, whether it's music or the writing and things like that. But this year has proven that, you know, things can change overnight as well. So likes of for us and doing gigs and myself mixing theater and stuff overnight that can change and that can be taken away and you know what it's exactly like lucy's blue day proves that you can have a day where you go you know what I, i'm gonna i'll stay in the house today you know if i want a day in my bed just to chill then so be it there's no yeah there's no pressures around that That's and embrace it and, and embrace those feelings i used to I, I grew up thinking that that being sad or or, or crying or or any of these negative emotions i grew up feeling that these these emotions were bad mm. and that you weren't supposed to feel these emotions when even and i said this to, to your kids craig that you know how many of us sitting here chatting oh, we've all had a cold at some point in our life aren't we mm. yeah and why have we had a cold because we're human and we're supposed to get colds so why are we sad angry jealous all these negative emotions we get them because we're supposed to yeah, where that's our body's way, that's our mind's way of, of dealing with any anything. So you should embrace it. If you're sad, be sad. Yeah. Don't fight not to be sad. Be it and and embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. The point that you're making is fair, and you, I think it's obvious that you're sharing so many key messages. So first of all, through Lucy's Blue Day, the need for you know children to understand mental health in everyday scenarios, so important. Uh, and then obviously the message of the, the, the new book, Big Boys Do Cry. We, let's not beat around the bush here. We live in a society where the, in Scotland, in the UK, where rates of suicide and self-harm are through the roof. And that is not, it's not acceptable that, that, that we are allowing 
that to be the case, right? So we need the me- the education needs to be out there, right? The message needs to be out there to people that exactly what you're saying that it is okay to be to be sad, to feel upset, to feel down. Big boys do cry is that is such an important message. When was the last time that you cried? No, it was very recent actually. Oh, do you know what it was? Right, I was I, I moved my um, I gave away my piano like last week, I think it was. I had an upright piano in my in my dining room. Um, it hadn't been played in, in about a year because I got an electric one last year. And uh, I, I gave it away and somebody came to pick it up last week. And down behind it was a picture of me with two wrestlers who had actually gotten close with. Uh, one, uh, his name's Dennis, and he, uh, he, he died of cancer five years ago. And the other one was... Um, so Animal from Legion of Doom, he died just a couple of months ago. And um, and this picture of me and these two had fallen down behind my piano. And and I picked it up and I, it totally threw me. Mm-hmm. And it just, and that was it. And then <laughs> it's funny because the both times, both times in my head are, are wrestling related. The time before that I had a cry was a few weeks ago when The Undertaker retired. Ali, when was the last time you cried? I think it was just not long after summer. And... It was, I think, when maybe when there was word of a second lockdown happening. Mm. And because at that stage, I think I'd just getting back into the swing of mixing gigs and mm. mixing theatre again after being away from it for quite a number of years. And it was all happening. And then the fact that they said a second lockdown's coming and it just kind of hit me that I was like, you know, I might not be mixing gigs for another year, which yeah. for me, you know, having done it for however long it was, 13, 14 years, to go a whole year at that point without mixing gig was just like a terrifying thought for me. So I think that just broke me completely mm. that night. Yeah, I cried around that time. So I, I, it must have been in in March when we went when we went into lockdown first, and we realised that we weren't gonna. I wasn't gonna get to New York for Tartan Week this year. Yeah. I wasn't that the fe- that the likelihood of festivals happening that summer, like it was horrible because yeah. you make all these plans and then the rug is pulled from you. The last year has been difficult in terms of family. Like we lost our great grand during the pandemic to the virus, mm. um, which <clears throat> was incredibly heartbreaking, to be honest. And and again, I would say made me feel bitter. My she passed the day after her 98th birthday, and I feel that she might well have made a hundred were it not for this virus taking over the care home she was in. <clears throat> so yeah. I was very close to my great grand have cried an awful lot of times since um, her passing in April um, because I miss her. I miss her dearly. But yeah, I'm a crier in general. I think I cried when Scotland qualified for the Euros. Uh, There's been loads of occasions. And I think it's important that we talk about this so that our listeners know that, you know, that as males, as humans, not just as males, because females get upset and get down too, but to put that message out there that it's it's all right to cry. And you know what, the, the, the book title... Big boys do cry is kind of sums it up because there's been so many times that I've heard through people that I know, you know, the phrase man up and get on it's with the it. worst phrase in the world. I hate that it's phrase. An I absolutely phrase. hate it. Every time I hear it, I honestly just want to say something, but you go, okay, that's just their opinion. And it's such a an old phrase, you yep. know, it's generations before us, but it keeps getting passed down. But like you mentioned before, the, the rates in Scotland are so ridiculous. It's yeah. so high. It's I quite think frightening. I think personally, I, I know or I know of in the last year, four people, four mm. all, all males who have committed suicide. Wow. Um, which is 
quite staggering. Yeah. Really. Yeah. It's it's upsetting as well, particularly from where uh, where, where where you live, and I know as well because I worked because I worked in Dundee, and I'm only I only live twenty minutes away, but. When you see the queue of cars for the the road bridge, and you see the sign, because when I worked in when I worked at Wave, I used to get the traffic notifications: bridge closed, police incident. As soon as you see those words, police incident, you know, yeah. you know exactly what it is. And I've seen it a lot this year, particularly yeah. that a lot of the, the the bridge has been closed a lot this year for for that reason. The other the other side of it from from my own personal perspective is I've sort of seen what happens if you don't get that help. I've seen the devastation it caused and that's something never ever leaves you and that's a frightening thing as well. So for me it was years ago but you get to that point where you do think, you know, if that person did say something just, you know, at any point day or night, they would still be here. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, you know, people need and to realize. That's this. a key message that yeah. it's really really important to talk um, and it's not it's not always easy it's not always the people that you think would that you might naturally think to talk to but talk to someone you know and um, whether it's your friend your family member or or to go down one of these kind of helpline routes that are out mm-hmm. there like message message chris message us speak to us mm-hmm. you know message anyone it's a really really important message and a really important thing to get out there um, i mean i've got i'm I've, i go i've got a therapist yeah. And I'm I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit that. Yeah. That, that therapist has saved my life on countless occasions. Yeah. You know, just by the fact that I could just sit and in this room, well this year anyway, because it's because of lockdown, but it's all done via Zoom. So I'm I'm in this room and I'm I'm talking talking away to, to my therapist. But it's all it's I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you this analogy, right, before the thing be I think you might remember this analogy, Craig, mm-hmm. about my, my can of coke. If you if you want to imagine, and I, I use this I use this analogy with the kids, but I use I it works great with adults as well. If you imagine this kind of coke that I've got in my hand is um, a can full of feelings, any feelings, you know, you're happy, it's anything, anything at all. But it's sitting there just now. There's nothing nothing wrong with it. And if I were to open this can and let these feelings out, there'd be no issues because it's not that's it, it, getting out. There's nothing happening. But if I were to take this can and rile it up, get it all worked up, get it all angry. If I open this can now, what's going to happen? It's going to fizz up and explode. Yeah, it's going to fizz up, it's going to explode, it's going to go everywhere. And that's the whole point. That's where you let your emotions out. You let them out when they're there because you don't want it all to build up and bubble up and then all of a sudden, it's all going to come out in one way or another. This is the very same can that I brought into your school, Craig. It's still the same. (laughs) One can. You know what's the top of it? It's, It's black. That's so I don't accidentally yeah, I open it. Leave it, for, leave it for a few seconds yeah. there, Chris. I would leave yeah. it forever because yeah. if that one's fizzed up every time he does this analogy, it's going to be an almighty explosion. 300 schools, this one can has been... <laughs> so, right, that's, that is a good analogy. And there was one that I heard years ago when I reached out to somebody for help and they told me, if you broke your arm, if you broke your leg, yeah. anything like that, you would go straight to a hospital. Mm-hmm. So the fact that your mind is broken people don't go instantly and get that help. They just let it fester. But if you had a broken leg, you wouldn't leave that for months, years. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't just let, ah, it'll be fine. It'll get there eventually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's been great. That's been a, a really important chat. Let's let's finish off in a little more of a lighthearted way. So yeah. what, what, are your, what are your hopes for the future? I want to write more. I think 
my job now is that I'm an author. That's my full-time job, right? I, I am an author. I, I, I want to write more, um, whether it's to help people, whether it's to tell stories, I don't know. But being an author, I, I want to be a published author. And I know that sounds really strange, right? Yeah. Because obviously I've got these books, yeah. but these are all self-published. Yeah, All my books are self-published. I'm not with a publisher. I do want to get noticed with a publisher or something at some point and yeah. continue to write maybe for my own publishing company. I don't know. Basically, I just I just want to get out of get out of COVID and just get hit the ground running and just you know make up for the year that we've lost. Mm. We're going to ask you three questions here that we're, that we ask every guest that we've okay. had on and they're going to get on. What's the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? I'm really good at telling uh, like thinking on my feet for for most part when especially when it comes to making up an excuse for something. I was 17 years old and I was still at school and. I took home a girl from school at lunchtime, right? <laughs> to my house for for lunch. For lunch, yes. Well, one of us was eating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, ah, <laughs> uh -huh. right. So my my mom worked uh, during the day. She was a dinner lady at a different school, and this <clears throat> one particular lunchtime, uh, for some reason, my mom came home early. Oh yeah, no. obviously me and my companion are in my bedroom. My mum's come home. I could have easily just um said, right, my mum's quite open minded. She she you know, I would have got I would have gotten a scalp and that would have been it and yeah, you know, a story to tell. But I, I I didn't um tell her that. For some reason I decided to go down a completely different route and told her that I shit myself and uh, had to come <laughs> home from school. <laughs> See, and the thing is, this would be a great thing to ask Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the thing is, she knows exactly what I was up to. She still brings it up to this day. Brilliant. When when I was telling her I was writing my, my autobiography, she says, did you tell the story about the time I came home from work early and caught you and your girlfriend? I was like, no. <laughs> That's no. absolutely brilliant. Starstruck. When have you been starstruck in your life? Uh, Hulk Hogan. I'm a big red. Funnily enough, I've never met him. I've only spoken to him. Well, I've lost it. I had Hulk Hogan's phone number. That was the whole thing. Oh, wow. Well, you've uh, led me very, very neatly onto the next question. And the last of our quickfire ones what's the most famous number in your phone and your mobile phone? Well, it was Hulk Hogan, but it's no longer there anymore. Let's go with Brett the Hitman Hart. He's in yeah. there. There he's, there he's right there. Brett Hart. Oh, zero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> quickly, 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 no. zero, zero, one. That's all you're getting for that. Um, yeah, yeah, Bret Hart, because the, all these numbers, like when I was on the radio yeah. and I would get a chance to interview these people, I would save their numbers because yeah. I'm a creep, right? <laughs> but I guarantee you, Craig, you did the exact same thing. Everybody on your phone is, is people that you've met and you've come across at one point. I was just about to say, like, you obviously idolised... Hulk Hogan, Brett the Hitman Hart, and when mm. you sit there and you realise you've got you've like your heroes' numbers in your phone, it's quite crazy actually. Yeah. Like I remember, <clears throat> so I'm a huge fan of the Libertines, and I've like I've I've spoken in previous episodes about how I've ended up on tour with the boys, and I've I've kind of got to know them as people. But still, the night that I was in the boys' dressing room and Carl Barat from the band gave me his number, I was just like what is going on here? Like, this is absolutely mental. Like, there's a few of them in my phone that I like. I can't believe I've got that. And to this day, like, I still can't believe that I have their number. 
I am friends, and this is the one thing that I'll totally name drop this. I am friends with the WWE champion. <laughs> the WWE champion is my friend. I could text him right now and say, hiya, how are you doing? And he'll actually respond. Well, sign him up for the podcast. Uh, the, the last thing is we, we've been getting our guests to do, uh, to answer some never have I ever questions. Okay. <laughs> um, never have I ever been in a crazy fight over a parking spot. No. Okay. Uh, never have I ever danced on a table at a wedding. Did I, I could even add to that. Was, <laughs> was, I, was, I, was I dressed or not? What do you want to know? <laughs> well, why, why would you be undressed at a wedding? Right. Well, actually, okay, there's a story to this as well. I've got stories for everything. When I was younger and thinner, um, I had a habit of taking my clothes off when the full Monty came on. <laughs> Any parties, right? I was, it was my cousin's wedding. It was in Lucas. The, the full Monty had come on. I was wearing a kilt, and I decided to, to, to start taking things off, and I ended up on the, on the table and all, the, all this stuff's coming off. And because I was I was still relatively young, I was I had boxers on under my kilt, so I thought... I'll do a fun, a fun teasy thing. I'll take my boxers off, but leave the kilt on, and it'll be, it'll be funny. My, my mom and dad were standing at the side watching, and my dad started on, on kind of unbuttoning as well. And my mom went, "You can behave yourself." My mom's over there, and she turned round, and there's my gran crossing the dance floor with my boxers on her head. <laughs> Brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. These cards that we're picking out, by the way, they're totally random, as you can see. There's oh, no, it's, it's, hundreds uh, there. Just by pure chance, I picked <laughs> this one out, so I know the answer is going to be yes. So you just need to explain what one and where. But never have I ever gone to a professional wrestling event. <laughs> Genuinely came out. What is the chances? Stuck. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> I proposed to my now wife at a, a WWE show. Wow. Um, WWE Raw in London. Uh, I managed to, for some reason... We, we were just walking past Wembley Arena um, because we went to London for the weekend and we're walking past Wembley Arena and it said, tonight, WWE Raw. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's quite cool. Well, we're going to see if we can get tickets. I walked in and I said, have you any tickets for the show tonight? The woman at the thing said, uh, well, funnily enough, they just had two returned. Uh, they're right here, front row, directly behind the commentators. Beauty. <laughs> so they, did, they do this thing called the Kiss Cam. So I know they do it in like, in like baseball games and stuff. Um, but at WWE, it was Maria. They did their kiss cam. The camera guy was set up right in front of us. And I thought, right, here we go. As soon as we flashed up on the TV screen, I was down in one knee. Boom. Kiss cam. I mean, she said no that night, mind you. But we're in <laughs> Great. Well, that takes us to the end of the episode. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an inspirational message that we're sharing tonight with everyone out there. It means a lot to have you on and uh, we thank you once again. Oh, thanks very much, guys. I really enjoyed it as well. It was a good way to spend, spend a, a, a good night. If you've been affected by anything in this podcast, you can get in touch with Samaritans 24 hours a day, seven days a week by calling 116-123. Or you can email joejo at samaritans.org. For more information on Chris Duke or Lucy's Blue Day, visit www.lucysblueday.com